A note to my podcast feed listeners, what you're about to hear is another episode from the new series I've been working on called Short Reads. Short Reads is basically just me reading a passage from a work of philosophical literature and then offering a few brief insights into the text afterward to help you think about the text and to find ways to apply the concepts in your own life. These episodes are released weekly, and as an Anchor podcast listener, I encourage you to keep listening as long as you like them. If you're finding the series especially enjoyable, I'd like to invite you to head on over to my Locals community page at exitingthecave.locals.com, where you can become a subscriber. A $3 subscription will give you early access to these episodes, as well as to my videos, to my philosophical musings in essay form, and especially to a community of other like-minded listeners where you can discuss these podcasts or any other philosophical topics you find compelling. I'm looking forward to meeting you over there. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Exiting the Cave Short Reads, The Consolation of Philosophy. As you recall from last week, Lady Philosophy regaled Boethius with three solid objections to his rather lengthy lament. This week she dons the persona of Fortuna herself and reinforces Fortune's dominion over the luxuries of false happiness. After the reading, we'll pick apart some of the things she says and go into the history of some of the references she calls forth from Boethius's memory. See you on the other side. Now I would fain also reason with thee a little in fortune's own words. Do thou observe whether her contentions be just. Man, she might say, Why dost thou pursue me with thy daily complainings? What wrong have I done thee? What goods of thine have I taken from thee? Choose an thou wilt a judge, and let us dispute before him concerning the rightful ownership of wealth and rank. If thou succeedest in showing that any one of these things is the true property of mortal man, I freely grant those things to be thine which thou claimest. When nature brought thee forth out of thy mother's womb, I took thee, naked and destitute as thou wast. I cherished thee with my substance, and, in the partiality of my favor for thee, I brought thee up somewhat too indulgently. And this it is, which now makes thee rebellious against me. I surrounded thee with royal abundance of all those things that are in my power. Now it is my pleasure to draw back my hand. Thou hast reason to thank me for the use of what was not thine own. Thou hast no right to complain, as if thou hadst lost what was wholly thine. Why, then, dost bemoan thyself? I have done thee no violence. Wealth, honor, and all such things are placed under my control. My handmaidens know their mistress. With me they come and at my going they depart. I might boldly affirm that if those things, the loss of which thou lamentest, had been thine, thou couldst never have lost them. Am I alone to be forbidden to do what I will with my own? 
unrebuked, the skies now reveal the brightness of day, now shroud the daylight in the darkness of night. The year may now engarland the face of the earth with flowers and fruits, now disfigure it with storms and cold. The sea is permitted to invite with smooth and tranquil surface today, tomorrow to roughen with wave and storm. Shall man's insatiate greed bind me to a constancy foreign to my character? This is my art, this the game I never cease to play. I turn the wheel that spins. I delight to see the high come down and the low ascend. Mount up if thou wilt, but only on condition that thou wilt not think it a hardship to come down when the rules of my game require it. Wert thou ignorant of my character? Didst not know how Crassus, king of the Lydians, erstwhile the dreaded rival of Cyrus, was afterwards pitiably consigned to the flame of the pyre and only saved by a shower sent from heaven? Has it scaped thee how Paulus paid a meed of pious tears to the misfortunes of King Perseus, his prisoner? What else do tragedies make such woeful outcry over? save the overthrow of kingdoms by indiscriminate strokes of fortune. Didst thou not learn in thy childhood how there stand at the threshold of Zeus's two jars, the one full of blessings, the other of calamities? How, if thou hast drawn over liberally from the good jar? What if not even now have I departed wholly from thee? What if this very mutability of mine is a just ground for hoping better things? But listen now, and cease to let thy heart consume away with fretfulness, nor expect to live on thine own terms, in a realm that is common to all. What though plenty pour her gifts with a lavish hand, numberless as the stars, countless as the sand, Will the race of man, content, cease to murmur and lament? Nay, though God all-bounteous give gold at man's desire, honors, rank, and fame, content not a whit is nigher. But an all-devouring greed yawns with ever-widening need. Then what bounds can e'er restrain this wild lust of having, when with each new bounty fed, grows the frantic craving. He is never rich whose fear sees grim want forever near. All right. A dire warning at the end there, capping off two very stark examples in the prose from history to illustrate in gruesome detail the workings of the famous wheel that fortune turns. Philosophy warns Boethius of the inevitability of his place on that wheel, and chides him for challenging this most natural state of affairs. Let's dive into the history and mythology first, and then we'll have a look at the problem of fate. Crassus was the last king of Lydia, he was said to have been fabulously wealthy. Herodotus recounts a fictional tale of Solon lecturing Crassus after his surrender to Cyrus on how good fortune, not wealth, was the true basis for happiness. 
Solon tells Crassus that three men had been happier than him, one of which perished heroically in battle and was given high honors for his heroic act by the Athenians. This is interesting because it compresses in mythical form a secondary argument that is beginning to form between the various kinds of false happiness. Which of these is the true path to happiness? Is it wealth? Is it power? Is it honor? Is it luck itself? Philosophy, as the voice of Fortuna, categorically rejects the notion that luck is a path to happiness. And a few chapters from now, we'll see that she has harsh words for all the rest as well. The Perseus mentioned in this chapter is not the legendary hero of Mycenae mentioned in Plato's dialogues. Rather, he was the son of Philip V of Macedon, who was conquered by Roman general Paulus in the Battle of Pydna in 168 BC. The mead of pious tears in the prose are ironic sarcasm. Paulus forced Perseus to march as a shackled slave in his triumph after the Battle of Pydna. The entire kingdom of Macedon was then sacked, burned to the ground, and divided into vassal states. Here, the dispute is between power and luck, rather than wealth and luck, or honor and luck. And while philosophy will concede happiness to neither, she is certainly declaring fortune the victor over both these men. The reference to Zeus's two jars comes from the Iliad. Zeus is said to grant every soul a portion of good and bad fortune from these jars prior to being sent to earth. To a few, he only doles out misery, but he never doles out only bliss to anyone. Of particular note here, then, is that King Priam thought he had escaped his portion of woe, only to discover that his miseries were all to come at the end of his life. Such also was Boethius's fate. The central philosophical theme of this chapter is the question of fate. Fortune is characterized as a force of nature, something that drives the phenomena we experience, like the inevitable passing of day into night, or the changing of the seasons, or the shifting of the weather. This is perplexing because one's fortunes are not like these natural phenomena. They're more like a judgment rendered at the intersection of intentions and these phenomena. For example, the desire to have a picnic lunch being met with either a sunny or a rainy afternoon. We render a judgment about those circumstances in which desire is weighed against the conditions. But this presupposes that our wills and the means of satisfying those wills are independent of the natural forces around us, which is obviously not the case. To some extent, at least, we are constrained by what nature will allow us. We could not decide, for example, to sprout wings, so why would we presume the capacity to raise the ambient temperature of the park in order to better suit our picnic? More to the point, why should we presume that the picnic itself is anything we have the capacity to make happen? 
This is what philosophy is arguing with Boethius. But there's more. This is indeed classic Stoicism. She is insisting that his glum mood is a mistake born of having forgotten that it is not up to him when and how he dies, any more than it was up to Crassus or Perseus. And as such, lamentation is foolish and condemnation of Fortuna is an injustice against the divine order. Contemporary determinists and Stoicists will use this and the previous chapter to argue against the idea that there could be any good reason for righteous indignation because there couldn't be any such thing as justice. For if Boethius' fate just is written in the stars, as it were, if the vagaries of fortune are indeed nothing more than a cascade of natural causes, how could any condemnation be reasonable? Things just are what they are. It would be like condemning the rain for falling instead of rising. But this is a mistake born of the presupposition that there is no such thing as a divine authority. Boethius, however, was profoundly invested in this assumption. The justice comes in the comparison of human intentions with the divine intention. When they diverge, injustice occurs. This is fundamentally what Lady Philosophy is actually arguing when she is not making the psychological point. We all have a role to play in the divine order, and fortune facilitates that as much as fate does. These two personas are lower-order manifestations of divine providence. It will take a couple more chapters for Boethius's gaze to finally shift from his concern for things of this world to the contemplation of the eternal truths. In the meantime, let's leave our hero here to ponder the problems of fate and fortune and free will over this coming week. Next time, philosophy chides Boethius again, telling him that it is wrong to think that fortune has even left him. Tune in then to hear why.